Okay, so we're talking about James and John this morning, and they were nicknamed by Jesus Christ as the Sons of Thunder. And you know, uh, it hit me, Jesus loved nicknames. He called Peter the Rock, he nicknamed him the Rock, and then he nicknames, in Mark chapter 3, he nicknames James and John the Sons of Thunder. And uh, I just thought that was really cool, because I love nicknames. And I give all kinds of nicknames to people and stuff, and done it all my life. I used to call my mom, who's sitting up here in the front, all kinds of crazy nicknames, and I did it all the way up into my 20s. And when I finally got into my 20s, I was calling these nicknames, and it hit me one day, I think I'm insane. I mean, what am I, what am I doing, you know? And then somebody told me, I heard this in a conference one time, that Tolkien, the writer, used to, he loved words, and he would just blast them out. You know, if you've been to see his movies or read his writings, Bilbo Baggins, and he, would, he just loved Bilbo Baggins, and I do that kind of weird stuff like that, so maybe I'm not quite as insane as I thought I was. But Jesus loved nicknames. Sons of Thunder, Peter the Rock, things like that. Now, why did he call these guys in Mark 3? Why did he call them the Sons of Thunder? Here's what we need to know. Now, I need to tell you this. Let's just, let me tell you this right up front. Last week, we did Andrew, right? Who knows what Andrew was? He is a what kind of person? People person. So last week, the deal was, there was this like this warm, good feeling in here. We're all Andrew and stuff like because Andrew's a people person. I got to tell you something about James and John. James and John are hard-driving, ambitious, cut-your-throat-if-they-have-to-cut-your-throat guys. That's who they are. You need to know this. These are success-oriented, goal-oriented, driven, ambitious guys. That is who James and John are. Are or was. That's who they are. So I want you to know that as we go through this today, you know that the flavor of this isn't going to be all feel good like Andrew. It's going to be a little bit different. It's going to be a little bit more tough because that's who these guys were. That was their personality. But before I get into them, I just want to say something real quick to the Andrews because last week caught me completely off guard with the Andrews. I was shocked. Before uh, the service last week, I said to Brenda, I said, Brenda, we're going to ask at the end, anybody who feels like they're an Andrew, to come into the prayer room right over there for 60 seconds. I want to say a few words. I'm going to have a prayer. And she says, well, should we get more communion in there? Because maybe they'll come in and they'll want communion. I said, oh, forget it. There'll be 10 people will come in. It's no big deal. Over 100 people came in to the prayer room. We have over 100 Andrews. And I've been thinking about that all week. Over 100 Andrews. And... What does that say? What does that mean? And it began to make sense to me. People all the time say to me, you know, when I walked into grace, I immediately felt, felt welcomed. It was so warm and welcoming. There, it made sense. If we have an unusually high amount of Andrews running around, these people persons who are great with people, and now it only makes sense, doesn't it? that we have so many Andrews and is so welcoming. So I want to say this to you because my goal last week was 60 seconds. I said, and if you're an Andrew, you know what I said to you in there, and I hope you haven't gone out and told anybody else because we got to keep that amongst us, all right? So there's no problems, okay? But uh, I couldn't have any kind of interactive one-on-one time because it was just such a huge amount of people. If you haven't signed up for a next step and you are an Andrew, I want to personally be the person on the staff to meet with you. Uh, so if all hundred of you like sign up today for the next step, I can't do this in the next week or two or three. It's going to take me a while, but I really want to meet with all the Andrews because of what I said to you last week in that room. So please take out your connect card, pull out your bulletin and your connect card, mark on it, Andrew next step. So I know you're an Andrew. Okay. If you don't have a pen, you're an Andrew, bug your neighbor. You have no problem with people. You talk to everybody right around. You got no problem with people. 
Grab a pen for your neighbor, rip it off, make sure you drop it in there because I really want to meet with you afterwards. These next steps, I did my first four this past week. They were absolutely awesome. I can see people gaining some spiritual traction in their life. Uh, we just had a lot of fun. And there's all kinds of stories. I would just love to, we got to have to do this at some point, share all these stories from these next steps that we're doing. I want to share one with you because it just struck me as being so cool. Oh, we have, and just as an FYI, uh, Derek or I uh, and most of all the rest of the staff except for the one staff member who handles financial stuff at church, we have no idea what anybody puts in that red box. Um, I said that this past week and somebody said, oh, really? So I thought I would say that again. We have no idea what goes in that red box over there. There is a volunteer here at Grace, a very trusted volunteer, who eventually gets all the checks that go in that red box and they make the deposit. And they were in a next step uh, about a week or two ago. And in their next step meeting, they shared this story. They took it on themselves. We didn't ask them to do this on their own initiative. Here's what they do. Every check, each week when they're making the deposit, they take each check and they look at the name on the check and they stop. And they by name call that name before God and ask God to bless that person or that family. And when I heard that, I thought, wow, now that's special. Now, I'm not telling you that to get you to put more checks in the box. I'm not telling you that. It makes me want to put more checks in the box. But it just struck me as that is fantastic. That's the kind of grassroots initiative, spirit-led initiative that makes grace awesome. So I want to share that with you. Now, James and John, who are these guys? I already told you. They're type A personalities. They're hard-driving, success-oriented. They're out for, if it has to be, if you're in their way, they're running you over kind of people. Now, I understand that us as Washingtonians are going to have a very difficult time identifying with these guys at all. But because they're in Jesus' inner circle, I thought we should give it a shot. Don't you agree? We should at least, you know, give it a shot. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a, take a look at who they are. All right. They're fishermen. James and John. Peter and Andrew, two brothers, fishermen. James and John, two brothers, fishermen. Now... James was the older of John, and he was the guy that was the obvious choice to be the leader of the disciples, not Peter. Why? Why do I say that? Because James and John's family was much more prominent than Peter and Andrew's family. How do we know? Well, the Bible gives us certain clues that, first of all, it tells us this. Number one, it says that they were sons of Zebedee. Why? You know, what does that mean? Well, when it's calling somebody out that you're somebody's son, it means that that person you're a son of had some prominence to his family name. They were sons of Zebedee. That's clue number two. Here's clue number, clue number one. Here's clue number two. Clue number two is they ran a fishing business that was so big and so successful, they had employees. It wasn't like it was their dad and the two boys out on a fishing boat. They had a number of employees they had. So they had like an industry going there. The third thing is this that they were so prominent that the night that Jesus Christ was arrested and Peter wanted to get into the, high, uh, to the court of the high priest, John, it says, who knew the high priest and the high priest knew his family, he was able to get Peter into the courtyard. So they were known. Their family was prominent enough that they were known. So all of those clues lead us to this, is that 
their family was much more prominent, much better known in the land. And in those days, when you were older and your family is more prominent and you're already in the inner circle, you should be the leader and that should have been James. Now, we all know that ended up being Peter. We're going to come back to that point in a few minutes. But that's why there was so much contention around Jesus constantly about who's the greatest. They're having this argument about who's the greatest. It was like watching a Muhammad Ali interview, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. They're back and forth about who's the greatest all the time. This is what they did. I want to read to you from Matthew chapter 20. Although, if you want to catch some insight from James and John a lot, you get a lot of insight into their personality in Mark's chapter 9 and 10. But I want to deal with Matthew chapter 20 and begin to give you some insight into these guys' personality who are around Jesus' inner circle. Peter, James, and John, the inner three. This is what it says. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. And she said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, these two guys we're going to talk about today were a part of your inner circle. And I think it would be really helpful, Father, if we could understand them. We can understand, God, what made them tick. We can understand their weaknesses, and we can understand how they transformed and why they transformed. What was it, God? So be with us today. Speak to each one of us. Uh, there could be, God, in this crowd of people, one or two type A personalities that could get something from James and John. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Have you ever thought about if you happen to be uh, a type A personality, if you're ambitious, if you're desiring success, have you ever thought about taking your mother with you to work to ask your boss if possibly they could promote you to maybe, let's just say, vice president or something like that? Have you ever thought about that? That's exactly what's going on here. They get their mother, they get their mother to come and say, Jesus, uh, how about in heaven of all places, we don't get to a higher boardroom than that, do we? In heaven, you know, could James sit on one side and John the other? Would that be okay? Is that too big of a request to ask? Is that success-oriented or what? And you, what you get as you read Mark's account of this, it's clear that James and John are putting her up to this whole thing. It's not the other way around. She's not listening, hey, boys, I'm going to go do this for you. They want this. That's how driven they are. That is their personality type. Luke chapter 9. Let me read you another, just a couple little snippets about their personality. Jesus here is on his way to Jerusalem. It says this. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He sent messengers on ahead and went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was headed for Jerusalem. And when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked the Lord, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? That's a little harsh, don't you think? Let's get the scenario here. Here's what's going on. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. Man, he's got a, he, you know, this is where the Last Supper and everything. I mean, he's, this is his final Jerusalem. He's headed in there, right? So where is he? He's got a large contingency of people with him. So he says, as he approaches this Samaritan village, he says, you know what? You know, we need to let them know we're coming. There's a pretty good group of us, and let's get some hotel rooms and places to stay. So he sends a couple of them ahead. They go ahead, and they say, you know what? There's no room at the inn. We, we don't want you staying here. You can't get a hotel room here. No. Now, Jesus takes it all in stride. 
Jesus had good relations with the Samaritans, right? One of his most famous parables was about who? The good Samaritan, right? The woman at the well, his famous conversation in John chapter 4, she was what? A Samaritan woman. He He healed the Samaritan of leprosy in, I think it was Luke chapter 10. So he had good relations. So he handles it in stride. But James and John, how do they handle rejection? They don't handle rejection well at all. They say, okay, Jesus, how about we call fire down out of heaven and we'll kill everybody, men, women, and children. Boom, the whole city is gone. All in the name of God. All in the name of God. This is the way they think. This is the way they think. Now, as opposed to Andrew, would Andrew ever do anything like this? Would we ever see Andrew make this kind of statement, a people person? He would never. He saw people as individuals. He saw people that mattered to God. They were important to God. How did James and John view people? James and John viewed people as problems that stood in their way of success. So anytime somebody got in their road path towards what they were about and what they felt God wanted, what they felt God wanted them to do, that was a problem and they should be eliminated. That's the way they viewed it. How do you view people? If you're a type A personality, if you're a success-oriented person, a goal-oriented person, if you're driven at all, if you're driven at all, how do you view people? And when people get in your way, do you feel like calling fire down out of heaven? You know what's interesting about this is that Jesus says, no, we're not going to call fire down out of heaven and destroy the city. And it wasn't too long from this. Maybe a year, maybe two. Jesus gathers his... So, so he, Jesus is crucified, resurrected, spends 40 days with his disciples. The last thing he says to them before he ascends to heaven, he says, listen, I want you to take the news of God's mercy and God's grace, the news about me, and I want you to share it in Jerusalem, Judea, and then where else? Samaria. Eventually, a guy by the name of Philip takes the message of Jesus Christ to Samaria, and what are we told? Many Samaritans believe in Jesus Christ. Now, they would have never had that opportunity to do that if they would have become barbecue, right? <laughs> and that's what that's James and John. That's James and John. Type A driven people are problems. They're standing in our way. Let's just eliminate them. Forget about salvation later. They don't really matter. They're standing in our way. And this is the problem with James and John. And this is how they felt about people. John, who wrote much of the New Testament. So you had Luke and you had Paul and you had John were the major writers in the New Testament. And you see his personality come through in his writing. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He wrote the book of Revelation, which were still trying to understand but uh his personality comes through he's very black and white with no gray and no grace a lot of times and you've got to understand this about him he talks about light and darkness good and evil he says either a child of god or you're a child of satan there's nothing in between there's no riding any kind of fence with him it's just like you're all in or you're all out he deals with things in a very broad way he broad brushes things like he'll say this if you're a follower of jesus christ you never sin Really? <laughs> That's what he'll say. You never sin. He doesn't talk to you about any exceptions. He doesn't have time for exceptions. Come on, let's get with the program. I'm in a hurry. He's going somewhere. Let's move. Well, what you get is different out of Paul. Because Paul says stuff like Romans chapter 7. He says, you know what? I really struggle and I have some problems and there's things that I want to do and things that I know I should do and I don't do it. I mess up. I'm a... So Paul's kind of the apostle of the exception. 
Where you have John, he's like, hey, man, there's no grace. I got no time. Let's move on. Just get... And if you really dig into John closely, you see that he includes the exceptions. It's just that he's in such a hurry. He is so focused and so goal-oriented. He's so much about the big picture. Now, let's read another story. Mark chapter 9. Uh, John had the tendency to be a little exclusionary. We're told this in Mark chapter 9. John said to Jesus, said, Teacher, we saw a man using your name to cast out demons. Let's stop right there. Is that a good thing? I mean, obviously this guy must be a follower of Jesus Christ, right? And he's casting out a demon. You know, I've not seen that done. And I'm not ready to see it done anytime soon, just in case you're wondering. But I'm thinking that's a good thing, right? That's a good thing. We're getting rid of the demons. It's a good thing. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ. Okay, so what does John do? How does he react to that situation? Look what he says. We told him to stop. Well, why did you tell him to stop? Because he wasn't part of our group. So John's like, you know, hey, unless we're doing it, I don't care if somebody else is doing something in the name of Jesus. If we're not doing it, it's no good. I remember as a kid, as a little kid, we would drive to church on Sunday. We'd pass other churches. I'd look at those other churches and i think, I don't know what they're doing in there, but it's definitely not of God. The only, <laughs> right, the only church that's really doing something for God is the church that I go to, right? It's my church. That was my world. It was very immature. It was very like, closed. I mean, I needed to get out of my neighborhood. I needed to walk around the block a couple times. I needed to do something. Right? But this is, his, this is his way he views things. way he views things. Uh, very least. All right, I just want to show you some pictures because there's pictures of John that we have. From, can you catch the light so we can see it clearly? That just make no sense whatsoever. Listen, remember, John is a fire-breathing dragon. Does that look like a fire-breathing dragon right there? Particularly the guy on the right there. Look at that guy. Meek, mild. He'd just sit and talk to you all day. Just, hmm. You know, that... Very inaccurate, and you need to know that. Where is that coming from? Because that's not John. I mean, maybe if the guy was gritting his teeth and he had lightning bolts in either one of his hands, it'd be a better depiction of him. That's not reality. That's not the pictures you get in the Bible. Okay, we can kick the lights back on. Who was John? John was a fire-breathing dragon. He was out for success. He was driven for success. And he viewed people as problems that stood in his way, and he needed to change. Did he ever change? He did. He did. Is there one defining moment? I can't really find it. But over a period of time, him being with Jesus, him going through the teachings that Jesus Christ took him through, and then eventually we're told that he was filled with the Spirit of God, over a period of time, I want, to, I want to express that for you type A, James and Johns out there. So if you identify with this at all and you get frustrated with yourself that, my gosh, you're just, you know, you want to install some kind of weapon system on the front of your car <laughs> when you're out on the road with just, you know, blowing people up. If that's you, if this is a problem and you're thinking, my gosh, I'm never going to change. There's no hope for me. I want to say to you, time. Give Jesus time. Keep giving him time over and over. Allow him to work in your life. Allow the Spirit of God to fill your life and work. That's how it happened for John. It didn't happen like this. Like after Jesus rebukes him for some things he's done wrong, he comes right back around like a chapter later and he messes up again. He still wants to you know, knock people off. That's what he wants to do. Give yourself time time and that's what happened in john's life the deal is this john outlived all the other disciples he was the last to go he lived up into his 90s 
they tried to execute him. They threw him in this pot of boiling oil. He did not die. Somehow he jumped out of there. I'd jump out too, but usually you're just like gone the moment you hit it. And he didn't. For some reason he got out. He was severely disfigured. They stuck him on this island called Patmos with all the worst people in the world. Eventually they took him off the island. They put him in Ephesus and history tells us that he dies in the church in Ephesus. Now here's the thing. This fire-breathing dragon of a guy throughout the course of his life changed. You know who wrote more about love than anybody else in the New Testament? This fire-breathing dragon did. This guy who was so goal-oriented, success-oriented, that people were problems standing in the way of his goals, had the nerve to write, if you were a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need to treat people with love and kindness and respect. That's what he did. Is, is the pack going dead? Yes. Use the mic. Hello. You're standing in my way of success here. Okay. He became, he became known as the apostle of love. This guy changed over the course of his life. And this guy who was so success-oriented became beloved by the early church because of that. When he was that fire-breathing dragon, he was not beloved by people. But this is how he's transformed. Now, how about, how about his older brother? How about James? Did he ever change? Remember, this guy was the older brother from the more prominent family and always wanted to be first and was in constant fights and battles over being first. Finally, he got to be first at something. Remember what I just said. John was the last to go. He was the last of the disciples to go. Who was the first? His brother James. He was finally first at something. He was the first to be executed because he was a follower of Jesus Christ. We read about in Acts chapter 12. This is what it says. It says, During the same time, King Herod began to mistreat some who belonged to the church. He ordered James, the brother of John, to be killed by the sword. You know what's interesting about this? Herod. Herod's a big-time dude. Okay? He's the king of the era. Big time. How in the world do you catch the eye of the king? unless you're making a big splash. James always had the habit of making a big splash. This guy, again, goal-oriented, success. He is going to stir something up no matter what, no matter where he is, because he's a fiery personality. That's what he's going to do. He's going to do something. He's going to do something so big that even the king is going to hear about it. Now, when the king hears about it, right, and he says, I've got to stop this Christian church, who does he go after, everybody? Does he go after Peter? Peter's the leader, right? Maybe he goes after James. Almost makes you think that James was kind of like a dual leader with Peter. He goes after James first. And, and you're in a warfare with somebody. Who do you go after first? You go after the top. And Herod goes after, and he gets James first. He executes him, and he says, oh, this worked really well. Now let me go get Peter second and imprison him. But Peter had this miraculous deliverance from jail. Now, what happened to James? Here's the insight. Now, listen, listen. We said this a minute ago. Remember? James was rejected. Doesn't handle rejection well. They told him there was no room for him. Couldn't stay at the Holiday Inn at Samaria, right? He got so angry, he wanted to barbecue the entire city. That's how he handles rejection. People are problems, okay? Now he's being executed. He's going to be beheaded for his faith in Christ. How do you think he's handling that? If he has a problem of rejection and now they're going to reject him so much they're going to put him to death, you think he's happy? You think he's like mild-mannered, you know, like the picture of John we saw just a few moments ago and he's all meek, okay. 
take me to the beheading. Do you think he did that? You think he did that? No, man, this guy is spitting nails the whole way. Now, here's the cool thing. Church historian Eusebius tells us about the way he was executed. So he had, like, an army soldier that was attached to him, and basically that army soldier was there to make his life miserable right up to the end where his head is cut off, right? So before he is beheaded, this guy who's attached to him hears James' story, his testimony, his testimony. He hears James. He is so moved by that that he goes to James, and here it is. He says to him, he says, I want to ask that you forgive me. Now, what's cool is the church historian says that James looks at him right in the eye. He pauses for a moment, takes a deep breath, and says, okay. We had to really think about it. He had to really think about it. Did he change? Earlier, he would have said, I don't forgive you. God, send the lightning bolt, kill this guy right now. Right? That's what he would have done. But he changed. And it so impacted this guy that this guy who was in charge of him said, I want to be executed right next to him. And both of them, their heads were cut off together. Both James and John were transformed. And to all of you type A personality, James and John people out there, give yourself some time to do this. It takes time. So um, what were they missing? What was it that we can point to? You know, there's only really one direct thing that I can see in the scriptures, okay, that was like, bam, laser focused to the two of them, James and John. It was right after their mother made this request, you know, hey, Jesus, boss, can you, you know, elevate these guys to vice president? After that took place, here's what we're told in Mark chapter 10. It says this. It says, when the ten heard. Who's the ten, everybody? This is the other disciples. The remaining disciples. So when the other ten disciples heard about this, they became indignant. Of course they did. Indignant with James and John. So Jesus calls them together and he says this. is, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them? And their high officials exercise authority over them. And here it comes. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. Here's the key. For you James and Johns out there, you've got to want to serve other people. Now, James and John love to serve God. They have no problem torching whole cities because it's all in the name of God. So they love to serve God. They love to serve the truth. They love to serve themselves. But they were out of balance because they just didn't know how to serve others or serve grace. That's James and John's problem. So if you identify at all with James and John, this could be your problem too. It's serving grace and it's serving others. So here's the fill-in. If you want to fill in something here, you James and John who are goal, success-oriented, please jot this down. Get in balance before you get in a wreck. Get in balance. Balance your life out before you wreck your life and somebody else's life because you're flying so fast down the highway that you're just like clearing people out of the way, causing wrecks all over the place. You have to get in balance. People were problems to James and John standing in their way of success. How do you view people? That's how they did. How do you view people? I think what's interesting here is Jesus says, you've got to serve. So I was thinking about this. All right. Jesus, you've got to serve. I've got to serve. I've got to be a servant. In my whole type A-ness, I've, I've, got to, I've, got to, I've got to learn how to serve. Well, what makes for a good servant? What makes for a, what makes for a good waiter or waitress? Right? Those are people who 
traditionally serve other people. What does a good waiter or waitress actually need? Now, I've never done this before. This is just from an innocent bystander in restaurants observing, okay? I think they probably need two things. They need a bunch of other stuff. So if you're a waiter or waitress, my apologies. I'm sure there's a long list of things that you do. But I'm thinking there's two things. First of all, you can't ignore people, right? So people, people actually matter. People are important. They're not something to be overlooked. You ever been in a restaurant before and the waiter or waitress was totally ignoring you? It's not a good relationship. It's a, that's a bad relationship when they're ignoring you. I've been in restaurants before. We used to go to this restaurant right up here in, in Clarendon, and I have no idea why we went there. The food was mediocre, and, and the wait staff there, they, they, they treated you like you were dirt, absolute, complete dirt. And so you'd, you know, you'd need the waiter or waitress. You'd hold, your, you'd hold your hand up, and you'd be like, you know, it, it, over and over again. I mean, they're gone. It was, it was unbelievable. And then the other thing besides the, you know, can't ignore people, your attitude with people. What's your attitude like with people? Well, at this restaurant, their attitude was unbelievable. When they finally would show up to take your order, the first words out of their mouth, I think the first day I went was, what do you want? It was just like that. What do you want? I said, oh, okay. And somebody at our table hesitated. <laughs> With what they wanted, they're like, ah, uh, and they said, then they said, come on. <laughs> I was like, wow, this is interesting spin on, you know, waiting on tables. So, you, you know, for James and John, if you're like James and John, how, how are you viewing people? Are people problems? I mean, do you get really frustrated with people? Because people really matter to God and extending that grace to them. James and John finally got it. It took them a while. Give yourself time and allow the Spirit of God to keep moving your life. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing I want to say. Use your gifts for God. If you're a James or John here, James and John were a part of Jesus' inner circle, the three, three leaders. Actually, there was four, but the inner circle was made up of three. There was Peter and Andrew, and there was James and John. Those four guys led all the other disciples. They were leaders. They were wired with the gift of leading. They had this passion for leadership, and they were good at it. They were good at it. They had some problems. They had some weaknesses, but they were really good at it. And here's the thing. If you're a James or John and you're goal-oriented, you're driven, you're success-oriented, my gosh, please use that gift, use that wiring for God in his church. Here's the thing I see happen so often with James and John's in church. Number one, they do one of two things. One of two things. Number one, they like totally sit on the sidelines. In their lives, man, it's all about success and I'm going to do this at work and I'm going to climb the ladder or I'm going to get this achievement or whatever. I don't care if they're running a Boy Scout troop. Their Boy Scout troop is going to be the best in the world. No matter what a James or John does, they're going to shoot for the top. They're shooting for the moon, right? Some of you can identify. But they come into church and say, you know what? Who? Not here. I know how I can be, and so I'm not going to do it here. Or, or I don't have the time for it, or I don't see the importance of it, so I'm going to sit on the sidelines here. I'm going to come in, I'm going to talk to people, I'm going to maybe feel good, maybe I'm going to learn something, but I'm going to sit on the sidelines. And here's what I want you to want to say to you. If you want to be successful in life, the church of Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. There is nothing greater that you can give your life and your gifts to than the church. And it's great that you go out and do all that other stuff to, for success. And that's wonderful. And go as high as you can go. But if you're not given a piece of that wiring to the movement of Jesus Christ in this world, please, please do. 
So the first thing is a lot of times the James and John sit on the sideline. But here's the other thing. Here's the exact opposite extreme. They come in and they blow it up. They blow churches up. I've been in the ministry 24 years now. I have seen James and John's blow up more churches than you can imagine. When I, you know, when, when Grace Community Church started eight and a half years ago, I got together, you know, with some other people and went to some church planning conferences, and I learned stuff. I wish I would have known it, like, eight months before Grace began, but I didn't. So this is what I learned, is that James and John's are highly attracted to church plants, to brand new churches. You know why? They see it as an opportunity for a takeover. Come in, I'm going to take this place over. It's small, it's new, I'm going to take it over. And so what happens is you get a bunch of James and Johns who are all excited about a new church, and you got the pastor there, right? And they're going to start this new church. You know what percentage of those James and Johns, that leadership uh, little circle there, exists in a church after it's been going for two years? You know how many are left percentage-wise? Almost 0%. On almost every occasion, when you have a new church start and there's a small crew of people that are doing that, almost 100% of them leave within two years. You know why? Because they're going to leave if they can't take it over. So it's one extreme to the next. Either they're going to like totally sit on the sidelines or they want to totally take it over. And so here's what I want to say. You can't sit on the sidelines, James and John. You can't do it. You can, but you shouldn't. You should use your gifts. So if you are sitting on the sidelines, please don't. Now, on the other end, if you're planning like this hostile takeover of Grace Community Church, like if you're scheming right now how you could, could you not do that? It's, it's a major pain. It causes me lots of problems, and I have lots of long meetings, and it's just a, it's just a bear. So uh, I just want to encourage you. You're James or John, you're hard driving. Use some of that. Use some of that for the glory of Jesus Christ within the walls of his church because there's nothing more important. Nothing more important to this world. The church is the hope of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, so much for your word. Um, God, we have, we have dealt with a, a pretty tough subject today. We've talked about James and John, and, you know, a lot of us are really familiar with these two guys because, you know, they, they did so much, but maybe not all of us realized that they were the hard-driving kind of tough nuts that they were. And, uh, God, maybe there's some of us here in this room that can really identify with their personality types. You've given some of us that hard drive. You've given some of us in this room gifts and talents and leadership. Um, Lord, help us to understand how we should use those gifts and talents and that drive inside of us for success, for the glory of your kingdom in a way that's acceptable to you. Jesus, apparently, your church was so important that you were willing to leave heaven and come and die on a cross. That's how... That's how valuable you felt about the church. God, I pray that we would value your move here on earth as much. Bless us today, God, please, to do what you want us to do. In your holy name, amen.